Hello and welcome to Radio Omniglot. I'm Simon Eger. Konnichiwa, Radio Omniglot boy yokoso. Simon Eger desu. This is episode 45 of the monthly Radio Omniglot podcast, in which I will be talking about Japanese, or Nihongo, or Nippongo. これは、ラジオオムニゴットポッドキャストのエピソード45です。私は、日本語についてお話します。I will be giving a little introduction to the Japanese language, talking a bit about its history, grammar, vocabulary, and such like, and also talking about how I have learnt it. 日本語を少し紹介します。歴史、文法、語彙などについてお話します。そして私がどのように日本語を勉強しました。Now, my Japanese isn't quite good enough to do this entire podcast bilingually in English and Japanese. It's quite rusty due to neglect, which I'm trying to address at the moment. More on that later. But first, let's start by a quick overview of Japanese. Now, Japanese belongs to the Japonic or Japanese Ryukyuan language family, which consists of languages spoken mainly in Japan. Japanese itself is spoken by pretty much everybody in Japan, which is about 125 million people. There are also about 1.4 million Japanese speakers in every country, particularly in the USA, especially in Hawaii, and also in Brazil, Hong Kong, Thailand, Australia, and Canada, and in quite a few other countries. And standard Japanese, or Hyojunro, is based on the Japanese of Tokyo, and it's the official language of the media, education, and official publications. There are also many regional variations, varieties of dialects of Japanese, which can differ significantly from standard Japanese in terms of pronunciation, vocabulary, and grammar. As far as we know, the Japonic languages are not related to any other group of languages or family of languages. They do share、um, similar grammatical structures with Korean, Tungusic languages like Manchu, Mongolic languages, and Turkic languages. And apparently, it's somewhat easier for people who speak these languages to learn Japanese, as the word order and structure is kind of similar. And indeed, some linguists group them into a language family called Amtik. But this idea is not accepted by everybody, by any means. In about the 4th century BC, people migrated to Japan from Korea, and the language they spoke possibly developed into Japanese and replaced existing languages which were spoken in Japan at the time, including ancestors of Ainu. Which is now spoken by a handful of people in Hokkaido in the north of Japan, and also possibly Tungusic and Austronesian languages were also spoken in Japan at that time, and they may have influenced the development of the Japanese language to varying degrees. That early form of Japanese is known as Proto Japonic, but as it wasn't written down, little is known about it. From the early 8th century AD, People started writing in Japan. At first, they used Dutch Chinese, and over time, they adapted it to write Japanese using some of the characters, which became known as kanji in Japanese, to represent both sounds and words. And other characters were just used to represent sounds. And over time, the ones used to represent sounds became simplified 
and developed into the two modern Japanese scripts, hiragana and katakana. So, during the old and early middle Japanese period, from about the 8th century until the 12th century, when Japanese was adapting the Chinese script to write Japanese, they also borrowed many words from Chinese. And as they borrowed them from various parts of China, probably, over a quite long period of time, when the language was changing, that's why, in modern Japanese, many kanji have several different pronunciations. Some are native Japanese words, known as kunyomi, and others are derived from Chinese, known as onyomi. And on that note, let's have a little look at the vocabulary of Japanese, which consists of a mixture of native Japanese words, known as yamato fotowa, or wago, and words borrowed from Chinese, known as kango, and words borrowed from other languages, known as gairaigo. About 34% of Japanese vocabulary is of native Japanese origin, at least 50% is of Chinese origin, another 8% is words borrowed from other languages, especially English, there's a tiny number of words borrowed from Ainu, and there are also quite a few words in Japanese that are onomatopoeic or mimetic or based on sound symbolism, including words known as Giseigo or that mimic the sounds of animals and people and other creatures, and also Giongo which mimic the sounds of inanimate things such as the wind and rain. Then there's Gitaigo, which represent states and conditions such as being damp or stealthy, and Gijogo, which depict feelings and emotions. Here are some examples. Now in Japan, a cat doesn't go meow, it goes nya nya or nyan, and a dog goes wan wan, and a fox goes konkon which also represents the sound knock-knock, bang-bang, or tap-tap. A horse goes hee-hee, and the sheep goes meh-meh. Then if someone is chattering or prattling, you could say they're going pachakuta. And if someone speaks a foreign language fluently, or is incessantly speaking, is glib or garrulous or voluble, or thin or flimsy or weak, you can say they are pera pera. A chuckle or a giggle or a suppressed, suppressed laugh is a kusukusu. Dripping water or trickling water is pota pota. A flapping, fluttering or pitapata sound is pata pata. Thundering, purring or grumbling is goro goro. Glittering, sparkling, glistening or twinkling is kira kira. If something is shaky or tottering or dizzy, you could say it's fura fura. The state of being sticky is beto beto. If you're excited or thrilled, you would say you're wackle wackle. And if your heart is throbbing and thumping, you could say it's doki doki. And if you're feeling cheerful, buoyant, happy, or in high spirits, you could say you're uki uki. Now these can be written with katakana, hiragana, and for some there are also kanji. And they are extensively used in Japanese. And the rest of the vocabulary is made up of hybrid words, or konshugo which combine parts from several different languages. For example, quite a lot of words were coined during the 19th century in Japan made up of Chinese roots. These are known as wase kango, or Japanese-made Chinese words, and some were borrowed back into Chinese and other languages of East Asia. And then there is wase ego, or Japanese-made English words. These are combinations of English words that have been borrowed into Japanese and put together to create new meanings. Examples include pasukon, 
which was Pasonaru Computer or Personal Computer, or Open Car, which is a uh, convertible car, or Salaryman, Salaryman, a man who works in an office who gets a salary, or O Eru, which is written with the letters in the Latin alphabet O and L, and stands for Officeredi, or Office Lady, or a woman who works in an office. And now let's have a little look at how Japanese is written. It uses a mixed script based on kanji, or Chinese characters, and two syllabic scripts known as hiragana and katakana, which are simplified versions of Chinese characters and are used to represent sounds, whereas kanji represent both sounds and meanings. And most kanji, as I've already mentioned, have several different pronunciations. They have onyomi, or pronunciations derived from Chinese, and kunyomi, or native Japanese pronunciations. And generally, when you have several kanji together in a compound, they use the onyomi, the Chinese-derived pronunciation, and when they are used on their own, then you use the uh, kunyomi. But that's not always the case. Sometimes these are mixed together. Let's have a look at a couple of examples. Well, first, I've mentioned that Japanese is Nihongo or Nippongo in Japanese, and that literally means Japanese language. Uh, the first character in this three-character compound means day, sun, Japan, and is used as a counter for days. Now, counters is a feature you find in Japanese and Chinese and various other East Asian languages, and possibly others, where when you're counting anything, you use a special word. You can't just say one day or one table. You have to use a word specific to that type of thing. And when you're counting days, you use ka which is the pronunciation of this character when counting days. Other pronunciations are available. In Nihongo, it's a shortened version of Nichi, which is one of the kunyomi, and the other is Jitsu, and then the onyomi are Hibi and Ka. So some examples of this character in use include Nichiyobi, which includes three versions of it, actually. Each character in this three-character compound includes this character. The first one is pronounced Nichi. The second includes the character as a radical, that is, part of a kanji that indicates the general kind of meaning. And the third is pronounced B. And together they mean Sunday. Another example is Hibi or Nichi Nichi, which means daily and is two of these characters together. But when you're writing it, you only write one, and then you write the symbol, which means duplication of characters. And then hikage means shade, shadow, or sunlight. And jitsugai means once, some time ago. Then the second character in Nihongo, the hon, means origin, source, base, foundation, root, cause, ingredient, material, or book, volume, script, and is used as a counter for long, cylindrical things, such as bottles. And in its, its kunyomi is moto, which appears in the word motoki, meaning original stock. And the third character, go, means word, language, or speech. And its kunyomi is kata, which appears in such words as kataru, meaning to talk about, speak of, tell, narrate, recite, chant, or indicate, or show. So, nihon or nippon, meaning Japan, 
literally means the sun's origin and is poetically translated as land of the rising sun. Another example you might have heard of is emoji, which means a pictorial symbol, a pictograph or pictogram. And it can be written with three characters, the first meaning picture, drawing or painting, e, or in its kunyomi kai, the second meaning sentence, text or letter, which can be pronounced mo or mon or bun, or in its kunyomi, fumi or aya. And the third character, ki, we've already encountered in kanji and romaji, which means character, letter or written text. And another onyomi is na, and the two uh, kunyomis are aze and azana. So that gives you an idea of how difficult it can be to learn these characters. Because everyone can represent several different sounds and you just have to learn the words to know which one is being used. When used in the names of people and places, some kanji have other readings that are not standard. There is a list of 2,999 kanji, including the commonly used kanji and special kanji used for names, which children have to learn in school. In uh, primary school or shōgaku, children learn the kyōiku kanji or education kanji, that is the first 1,026 kanji, and there are certain kanji they learn in each grade of school. And then in um, middle school and high school, they have to learn another 1,130. These are known as joyo kanji or um, regular use kanji. And the joyo kanji includes all the ones they learned in elementary school as well. In addition to these, there is another 863 characters which are used in um, personal names. These are known as Jimeyo Kanji. Now the, these numbers have changed over the years. Sometimes there have been more you had to learn, sometimes fewer. For example, back in uh, 1952, there were only 92 of the uh, personal name Kanji. And of course, this is not all the Kanji you need to learn to, to read Japanese. There are shōgai kanji, or unlisted characters, which are not part of these standard regular use kanji and name kanji. But if these appear in official texts, they have to have furigana, that is, hiragana or katakana, above them or beside them, depending on whether the text is written vertically or horizontally, to indicate the pronunciation. That's something else I haven't mentioned. That in traditional Japanese texts, the text runs in vertical columns from top to bottom and from right to left. And Japanese is also written in horizontal lines going from left to right. And now I think it's time for a little tune. This is an improvisation I came up with today while recording this, um, played on the recorders, the tenor and discount recorders which has a vaguely Japanese sound, so I gave it a Japanese name, Genso Teki no Kyoku, which means fantastic tune or whimsical tune.
And now let's talk a little bit about Japanese grammar. In some ways, it's a lot simpler than European languages in that it, there are no articles, no genders. There are only two tenses. Verbs do not conjugate for person or number. Generally, nouns do not change for number either. There are some plural endings, but they're only used for some nouns to do with people. And um, generally, Japanese is a very regular language. Once you've learnt a particular pattern, then that's it. You don't have to learn lots of exceptions to it. And there are some things that are not regular, as in any language, but a lot less than there are in many European languages. Um, the word order is generally subject, object, verb. So the verbs go to the end of the sentence, generally. And um, instead of having prepositions, you have postpositions. So, for example, instead of saying, I'm going to Tokyo, in Japanese you'd say, Watashi wa Tokyo e Or literally, I, topic marker, Tokyo to, I'm going. That's the standard polite version. If you wanted to be more informal, you might say, Boku wa Tokyo e iku. And if you want to talk about someone else going to Tokyo, and you want to use the extra polite version, the Keigo version it's called, you could say, Honda sama wa Tokyo e which would mean Mr. Honda or Mrs. Honda or Miss Honda, Miss Honda. The sama is a polite um, form of address. In standard formal language, you would say san, which is a very useful word because in English, when you're addressing someone politely, you have to choose the right title. Are they a Mr. or a Miss or a Mrs. or a Ms. or a Sir or a Lord or a Duke or whatever? In Japanese, you just use san, or in very polite circumstances, sama. And the, the verb at the end, irashaimas, is the very polite version of to go. And then you have lots of extra little quirks in the grammar that are unique to Japanese, such as there are quite a few different versions of the pre their pronouns. There's not just one version of I. And when you start learning Japanese, you learn that I is watashi. But when, as you get more into it, you learn that there are other forms of I, like boku and ore and watakushi and atashi. And these are used in different contexts, depending on who's speaking, who you're speaking to, and the level of formality, which is an important part of Japanese. And I've already mentioned it briefly. Generally, when you meet someone in Japan, you will exchange meishi or name cards. And on the meishi, you will see their title, and that gives you an idea of how to address them and how deep to bow and how to interact with them. So you adjust the way you speak to them depending on their relative social position. Generally, if you're talking to someone who's younger than you um, or same age, relatively the same social position, then you use informal language or kind of normal polite language for someone in the higher social position, you definitely use polite language. And if someone a lot higher up in the social hierarchy than you, you use Kegel or extra polite language. And then there is very um, informal language you would use with close friends and family. Although often when addressing the, el the older members of your family, your parents, your grandparents, you would address them in informal language. And they would address you in informal language. So, for example... When talking to your mother, you would say, Okasan. But if you were talking to someone else about your mother, you would use Haha. Similarly, for your father, when addressing your father or talking about someone else's father, 
you would say otorosan, that when uh, talking about your, your father to someone else, you might say tichi. And the um, informal version of the of san and sama is chan. So parents might call their, their children their name plus chan, and that can be used to address other children who are not related to you as well. There's a lot more I could say about Japanese grammar and other aspects of the language, but that'll do for now, I think. Um, now I'll talk a little bit about how I learnt Japanese, and why, indeed, I chose to learn Japanese. Let me take you back many years ago, mukashi mukashi, a long time ago, when I was in um, secondary school, or high school if you prefer, I decided I wanted to learn languages in university. And at first, I thought I'd carry on studying French or German, and maybe another European language. And then I thought, well, why don't I learn something a bit more interesting and challenging and different and exotic? And I thought about Chinese and Japanese and Arabic and other languages. And I chose to study Chinese at the University of Leeds in England. And when I applied for the course, they said, hey, we're doing this new course in uh, Chinese and Japanese. Do you want to do that? And I said, yeah, why not? So I ended up studying um, modern Chinese and Japanese studies at the University of Leeds and spent my second year abroad, partly in Taiwan, partly in Japan, and also in China and Hong Kong. And so I spent uh, four months in Japan studying Japanese at Kansai Gaikokugo Daigaku, or Kansai Gaidai for short, which is Kansai University of Foreign Languages near Osaka. And I stayed with a local family. And it was it was fun. It was interesting and different. And uh, it's very good for my Japanese, although I wasn't really there long enough to become really fluent. One of my friends, uh, who was also studying Chinese and Japanese, he spent his summer in Japan, and he got a job in a fish market in Osaka, and ended up speaking not only Japanese fluently, but he picked up Osaka dialect, or Osaka-ben, which um, differs in quite a, many, many, a few ways from standard Japanese, and he ended up married to a Japanese woman. Uh, but I didn't do that. I spent my summer travelling around China and hanging out in Hong Kong, uh, which was good for my Chinese and Cantonese, which I picked up a bit of, but not so good for my Japanese. And then I had another two years back in, in England, in Leeds, and after I graduated, I applied for a scholarship to study more Chinese in Taiwan, and also applied for the JET program, which um, is, I, can't, I don't know who it's run by, but it's a way for graduates to go and teach English in Japan or to become kind of cultural ambassadors. Um, I wasn't accepted for that program, but I did get the scholarship and studied in Taiwan for another year, then worked there for four years, then went back to the UK. Um, and during the time I was in Taiwan, I did use my Japanese a little bit, but not very regularly. So, yeah, after graduating from university, I didn't use my Japanese very much. You know, I'd, I'd learned to quite a, a reasonable level. I was able to read and write it, I learnt the kanji and hiragana and katakana and all that, that. I couldn't comfortably read a newspaper or a novel or anything without having to look up half the, the words. And at that time, there were no electronic dictionaries or mobile phones to help you with that. So you had to use a paper dictionary. And looking up kanji, especially in a paper dictionary, if you don't know how they're pronounced, is particularly challenging. Nowadays, it's a lot easier um, with electronic dictionaries and apps on your phone, you can just you know, point your camera at a bit of Japanese text, you know, take a picture, 
and scan it and translate it for you. You can hear it and understand it. It's brilliant. And any text you find online, you can stick in a translation translation software like uh, Google Translate, and you can get it translated, you can hear it, you can get it transliterated into Romaji and all that. So, you know, I didn't have any of these tools back, back in the late 80s, early 90s when I was learning Japanese. It would have been nice, but uh, I managed anyway. And one thing I didn't do very well was trying to learn all the different pronunciations of the kanji. Because I thought, well, I know what they mean from learning Chinese, although the meanings aren't always the same in Chinese and Japanese. Um, So I could recognize them, but I didn't always know how to pronounce them. I can guess. Guess they're onyomi, at least. They're Chinese-derived meanings, although they're not always very close to their Mandarin pronunciation. They're much closer to uh, Taiwanese, in fact, which I did learn a bit of. And at times I've I've uh, met Japanese people or Japanese speakers and used a bit of my Japanese. For a while, back in the um, early 2000s, I had um, friends on, online I regularly talked to on Skype in Japanese, and that helped. And then recently, in 2021, I started learning Japanese again uh, using Duolingo this time. And I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's, it's starting to come back to me. I mean, I don't remember everything. I've, it's quite rusty and due to a lack of use. But um, yeah, I recognize a lot of the kanji. I don't, as I said, I don't know how to pronounce all of them, but I'm starting to learn more of that. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it, actually. It's a challenge, definitely. You know, when I listen to you know, normal spoken Japanese or Japanese songs, I don't understand very much, usually. But I hope I'll start to understand more before long. I've been looking out for interesting Japanese bands to listen to and other content to watch and listen to on YouTube and other places. If you have any recommendations of podcasts in Japanese I could listen to, then you can leave those and comment on this and any other episode of this podcast at radio.omnigot.com where you can also find notes on this and other episodes. And um, one band I particularly like is the Wagaki Bando, and they combine Western instruments, electric guitars and bass and drums, with traditional Japanese instruments like the shamisen, which is a kind of stringed instrument, and the koto, which is a kind of harp, and the shakuhachi, I think, which is a kind of flute. And it's yeah, they do an amazing performance. And the costumes, the singing, the music, the whole—it's just a spectacle. Even the audience is amazing. So if you haven't heard of them, check them out. I've embedded one of their videos on my Japanese page on Omniglot, where you can find more information about Japanese, of course, and links to online Japanese courses, dictionaries, and all that sort of thing. Um, while recording this podcast, I've been updating that page and keep on finding new and interesting things to add to it or to talk about here. So there's a lot more that can be said about Japanese. But we're nearly up to half an hour, which is longer than previous episodes. So I, th- I think that'll do for today, for this month. I might talk about other aspects of Japanese in future episodes, particularly about emoji, uh, an interesting topic in themselves. So I hope you found this interesting and informative. If you're learning Japanese or have learnt it or you speak it as a native language, and you'd like to leave any comments, as I said, you can go to radio.omnigot.com. And if you want to support me, you can find links there on omnigot.com to my PayPal and Patreon. Uh, because every, every little bit and large bit helps. 
to support my work here. I, this podcast is not sponsored by anybody at the moment. So if there's any people out there who would like to sponsor it, I would welcome that. You can contact me at feedback at omnigot.com. I am Simon Eger, and this has been the Omnigot podcast on Radio Omnigot. Uh, so that's all I've got to say for now. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Sayonara. <laughs>